Welcome to Find the Outside the Podcast. I'm Tim Merry. And I'm Tuesday Ryan Hart. This week on the podcast, we're going to kind of do a high level talk through of how we're learning about evaluation and data and how that integrates into significant change work. We've been learning a lot about this over the last, uh, well, particularly the last 12 months, I would say, as we've been working in some major initiatives that has included bringing in large consultancy firms who are generating data for us. And at the same time, we're involved in kind of using developmental evaluation as tracking our work as we go forward. And so I think there's a real uh, uh, opportunity to kind of combine the process expertise that we bring in with kind of the data and analysis that comes out of evaluation work to support really powerful interventions in very large systems. And so we just kind of wanted to dive into that this week. I was just about to say, wait, Tim, I'm a social worker and you're a theater guy. Why would we be talking about data? (laughs) And evaluation, like what is happening? All right. I mean, I do want to say that like you were a social worker when you came into this field and I was a theater guy when I came into this. I think we, I just feel like we've somewhat evolved since then. Sure. Sure. I just wanted to note that this is, you know, you have these moments in your life uh, where you kind of like, how did I get here? And maybe it's because today is my birthday and I'm reflecting in general, but I just had a moment as you were talking about it. (laughs) Thank you. That was a shameless plug. But I just had this moment of like, how did I, how am I, how am I talking about data and evaluation? And how am I like jazzed about talking about it and like see how much it's impacting our work and how much I think it has accelerated our work in the last year to have some facility with these ideas, um, even though we're not the people in our work who bring in the data analysis or the evaluation. I just think it's it's added immeasurably to the quality of our work in the last year. Yeah, I love it that you said that. So, you know, essentially our role in our work is we're like we're like process designers and we're strategists. Like that's mm-hmm. the work we do. So what we get to do is reap the benefit of those who are bringing the expertise around kind of like analytical data development or developmental data, which also and or also the data that draws in narrative, right? Mm-hmm, so we mm-hmm. can hear what systems are saying about themselves. So that kind of like qualitative which is the story and the quantitative, which is the numbers, that combination of data we benefit from in terms of thinking about how we launch participatory process or strategic interventions into very large systems, right? Um, and we're planning next year to bring Jacob Watkins in from PricewaterhouseCoopers, who's been doing some really uh, interesting analysis, kind of data analysis work with us, and also Gabrielle Donnelly, who's been doing some incredible work with us around developmental evaluation and developmental data. So we'll be bringing both of those folks in next season in our podcast. Tune in for a diving deeper. (laughs) But we did want to kind of give you some high level kind of reflections on how we can integrate those. And I think for us, and I'd like you to speak to this, Choose, but I think for us, both of us come from a global community where this has been a real gap in the delivery of the work. Mm-hmm. And I mean, both of us have been mm-hmm. involved, you know, over over many years in very large systems interventions without really rigorous data analysis accompanying them or without uh, tight cycles of developmental evaluation to support the kind of emergence or evolution of the work. Right. And so uh, do you want to just speak a little bit about that gap? 
Yeah, I'd be really, really happy to. And I think, you know, we could say that the gap is um, or kind of uh, our fields kind of like or uh, rejection or not working with data or evaluation in rigorous ways has been kind of indirect reaction to the ascendancy of quantitative data as if we could data Mm. and oversimplifying complex issues as if we could simply data our way out of a complex issue, or we could simply um, evaluate it to motivate people or to find the right solutions, right? And so I think that there's like a really honest reaction to that kind of ascendancy, that kind of deductive reasoning uh, that so often uh, accompanies data capture. And so I, so I think it's honest. I think it's it's a a, um, a legitimate reaction. But I think for us, as we get into bigger and bigger systems change, where data is simply part of the environment, partly we just had to figure out how would we work with it? How would we use it? This isn't going away. And simply saying, we have other ways of knowing or the collective will discover is insufficient, right? And so in some ways, this was really about responding to what is in front of us, which is um, most organizations, most movements, most collectives, uh, most folks who want to go someplace, there is a data requirement. And so then how do we work with that? And we've been fortunate enough. And again, you know, you mentioned Wolf Jacob on, we've been fortunate enough to be learning this year with someone who's like a real data hound, like full on, you know, data set. <laughs> is that like an official title data hound? Yeah, I think that's, I, that's what I call him. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I mean, they might call yeah, him managing partner. I don't know, whatever. Uh, but he's a data hound. And I think, <laughs> He's been really willing to to work with us on what the data can and cannot tell us. Where is it applicable? Where is it useful? Where is it an incredibly incomplete picture? And also then helping us bring in what we've been working with narrative data for years, right? We've done sensing right. interview for, for sensing interviews for years. We've presented that in kind of information for years. And so really learning about marrying these two different streams and not ascending one and yet not also just saying, oh, I mean, I worked at Ohio State for years, right? So research one university, you know, you you just learned that data could tell you anything. Data could tell you anything you wanted it to say. So in some ways, while data was the currency, it also had very little value because it could just be manipulated. And so I think Mm. I came in pretty skeptical, right? And so for me, it's been an evolution of learning on how do we meet people systems where they are? How do we use what's good from the data, not ascend it, and yet... Um, move from what can be really valuable information. Yeah, and I, th- I think one of the reasons um, uh, there's a resistance to data, you know, or to working with data in our field, which is often very relational focused, right? Mm-hmm. The focus is often if we create the conditions, people will come together and just discover the path forward, right? There's a, the, the whole idea of collective intelligence, like tapping into collective intelligence, right? Um but I think one of the reasons is is that data has often been used as a way to discover an answer. Yeah. Right? And what, yeah. right? Like, oh, we've got the data, so now we know what to do, you know? But then what happens, of course, is the other, you know, the other group use the same set of data to discover mm-hmm. their answer, and right. then they just go to battle with each other, right. wielding data at each other like rather blunt clubs, mm-hmm. deciding who's right or wrong. And uh, a good friend of mine, um, I think I might have told you this before, uh, Matt Hall, he has a fantastic organization called Agile Geoscience, but he's like a full-on science geek. Mm. And he and, and he uh, doing incredible work. And he, um, he, he talks about uh, uh, how that's a fundamental misunderstanding of science of data, mm, you know, mm. that actually 
you, you know, the, the very nature of science is that it's an inquiry. It's never meant to come up with answers, mm. right? It's, it is by its nature, a process of discovery, you know? And I just thought that was brilliant coming from like a complete data man who like looks at subsoil geoscience and works with data and has built apps to like aggregate it and all kinds of stuff. Um, and then I think the, the only other thing I want to say here is that often because people think data has the answer, um, uh, it, people get, uh, there can be this misconception that if we do really good data analysis, we're going to know what to do. Yeah. And our experience is the more data analysis you do, the better informed your decisions are, not the easier they are to make, right? Mm -hmm. So you've often got so much data coming in, right? That actually you have a far greater understanding of the circumstance you're in, but it's not like, I mean, I've never seen a data set in our world that says, go do this, you know, where it's like super clear what the overall direction is, you know, or exactly what you should do in response. So I think it's a, there's something about data allowing us to become better informed, but it doesn't necessarily make our decision, decisions easier to make. Right. And in fact, I think the other place that I can feel my own like skepticism coming in is um, the request for data and the request for more data is often a block. Right. It's often mm. a block to actually getting to work. Um, it doesn't fit with my general worldview around complexity. Right. Which in, which I think is what you're pointing to. Right. That if we just knew more, we could find the right answer. But I also Ooh. think um, I also think in general, my experience has been like the first step anyone wants to do is find more and more data. And often the data is already out there. We've already seen it. It's not compelled us to move. Right. And so this idea of asking for more and more data looks like action but it actually isn't. So like actually really allows us to stay safe and in our comfort zones without actually taking action on that, which is most important to us. It's <laughs> a procrastination strategy. Mm -hmm. It's really an excuse not to respond to the reality that we're faced with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And I just like living in Nova Scotia, like the amount of studies we have, you know, that identify the issues, right. But the lack of movement into really tackling them. I mean, it's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. You know, and so this this whole idea that data is in itself an action. Yeah. yeah. And I think that folks who are really into data, like you mentioned, your friend, Matt, I think, you know, we could talk about Jacob. I think we could talk about we uh, with the homelessness work we had. We, you know, commissioned a, a study like those folks who are really in the data will tell you quite honestly, like this actually doesn't give you the answer. This helps you think yeah. about it maybe this way, right? So yeah. um, with, the, with the last, the project that uh, we're working on now that has a strong data component, the, uh, um, Jacob brought in, he said, you could look at the data this way, but I would encourage you not to do that. I think actually it looks like it gives you this answer, but I think it actually gives you this question. Right. And so he was uh, able, right. That last, that last morning he was able to kind of help us from landing on data to give us an answer and push us further into inquiry. And for me, that's what good data does. And so you can, you can meet systems where they are this appetite for data, which might be about, um, this is how the system works and, and data is an important part. It could be a funding requirement. It could be a donor requirement. It could be lots of like data, right? Like it's not just, um, it's absolutely a requirement in many, many systems for many different reasons. So, so for me, this allows you to meet the system where they are and kind of honor that need or that requirement for data and still push into innovation and emergence. But sometimes people will feel they have a more solid foundation to push from, right, if the data is there. And so it actually, one of the things I think we're discovering 
are ways to work with that data as a foundation, as a way to push you into inquiry, as a complete complement to some of our processes, not a block, not a thing to get around, not a um, old school way of thinking, but actually as a complement to what we're bringing. That's what feels exciting yeah. to me. Yeah, I remember when uh, we did some early conversations with Jacob and, uh, and we had a conversation around uh, the purpose of this data is to uh, provoke, accelerate, and inform our multi-stakeholder core team, right, on where they take action mm -hmm. for greatest systemic impact, right? To provoke, accelerate, and inform. Mm -hmm. Like that was the purpose of it, mm -hmm. you know? Now, the interesting thing then becomes, right, so you get... Uh, I'm moving us on slightly, but you'll, but like, yeah, good. So you get this, like, that was Tuesday giving me a thumbs up over video, everybody, just so you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that was, so you get, so, so you get this kind of like, uh, um, you know, issues map, if you like, gaps identification, growth areas, like all of that becomes visible to you, right? Um, and then becomes the thing of like, where do we implement, you know? And so often what we've got is data sets that identify the issues, but we don't have data sets that give us information on mm -hmm. how to implement successfully mm -hmm. in response to the circumstances that have been identified by the analysis, right? Mm -hmm. And so then you begin to get into your developmental data, right? Mm. Which is where Gabrielle Donnelly has been such an incredible supporter of ours, you know? So we've had Jacob on one side doing this kind of like analytical work and then Gabrielle working with us around this developmental. And so when you, when you, when you use your analytical data, right, that can help you to start along with the narrative data that you were talking about, the stories that the system is telling itself, that gives you a map of the circumstance that allows you to choose strategic areas that you would launch your experiments, right? You then launch the experiments. And what the experiments do is generate data on how to get shit done, right? How, so, oh, oh, no, we just got an <laughs> E next to our podcast. <laughs> I haven't been trying to avoid that. Mm. Sorry, sorry, know, everybody. Look, on a data and evaluation podcast, there's an E. Only you, Tim yeah. Barry. Only you. Thanks. Cheers. <laughs> cheers. Yeah. Yeah. That might make it more attractive. Good point. <laughs> it's a, it's a Ooh, spicy. It's data and evaluation and it's explicit. You know? It's good. <laughs> um, all right. So so but you identify the data, right? The data and you're into developmental. So you're then so then in rapid cycles, you're developing data that tells you how or how not to implement change within that system. So suddenly you're getting a data set that is supporting people take action rather than identify the kind of big picture view, which is I feel often as far as we go with our data. Mm -hmm. Our data our data is summative. We do a summative evaluation of where we're at. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then get overwhelmed by that and file it. Or we launch some massive system-wide change that isn't particularly well-informed because we don't have any data on implementation. We've only got an analysis. We've only got a situational analysis, right? And I mean, I guess to say that summative evaluation is so traditionally how we think of evaluation, that part of what um, excites me about developmental evaluation is it actually supports a shift in mindset toward experimentation it supports a shift in mindset toward learning, like not learning after the fact, did it work, did it not work, but learning as you go to iterate. And so evaluating in this way, and again, I just think some of these things can bring real comfort to people as they're trying to do something new and different, right? Like there's there's some 
there's some ground we're 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 working back to always feeding back what we're learning to take the next step. We're not guessing always the next step. We're we're learning from what happened before to take the next step. And so for me, developmental evaluation part of part of what it brings to a process or a project is a is a implicit nudge toward thinking differently. Like an implicit an implicit nudge against kind of traditional planning traditional summative evaluation, traditional ways of did this work or did it not, it actually um, helps us, you know, we we all say all the time, like we only learn from failure, we need to fail, fail fast. And blah, blah. we say those things all the time. But I think that developmental evaluation actually allows us to see the benefit of failing and how that failing actually then impacts the next decision or the next step. And so that it's not just rhetoric of saying failure is important. You actually see how failure is important and then you iterate it into your next piece. Yeah. And you get to measure how much you're learning as one of your, as one of your indicators of success, right? Rather than it being, have you hit this number that you were meant to hit, right? Right. Right. So, which is a summative approach, right? Is you establish benchmarks and then you measure people's success against those benchmarks. Whereas an evaluative approach is you're generating the data as you go and then adjusting your actions in response to what you get along the way. Um, well, and again, just to say, like, just like we talked about more of the traditional organizational or uh, an analytic data, like there's a narrative counterpoint or there's a sensing counterpoint that goes with that data. Summative and developmental evaluation walk together quite well. You know, Gabe is always telling us it's not an either or. Let, you know, mm. like we cannot position it as an either or. These are two things that actually need to be aligned, need to work together. Yes, you will, you know, make your funding requirements because we will help you with your summative evaluation, right? We can't change, we can't drink the ocean. We can't change everything at once, right? So, so we'll work with you on the traditional ways of evaluating and then add developmental evaluation. So it's not, again, it's like, it's not a good or bad or an either or, it's a both and here um, in these kinds of data and evaluation. I think that that needs to be made really clear. And I think for me, it was really helpful to have that made clear um, that it wasn't throwing out the baby with the bathwater and we were actually gonna try to do something different. Right, and all that information you're developing along the way as you try things out, gather learnings, try something else out, gather more learnings, all of that data actually aggregates also to inform summative learning, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about what you did after the three years in the homelessness project, Hunger, right? hunger. Hunger project, sorry, mm -hmm. right? That I mean, that's like an incredible summary mm -hmm. of multiple iterations of a highly complex intervention into a food systems, yep. right? Yep. Yep. And we can put that in the show notes, right? There's a, yeah, we developed a website. Yeah. We developed a website that's kind of summarized the, I think it was probably six years of work at that point, right. In intervening in, in, uh, in, uh, food systems across, uh, my state. And so, yeah, that was incredibly important. It was incredibly important. And from this perspective would only have been helped with summative evaluation. Like we had hard numbers, you know, we had, 200% more food into a community. We had those um, and they were kept as well. But like, it just feels like, I just feel like we're getting a much fuller picture of what's possible, a much fuller way to support these processes that can be what people know they want, right? And I just like, if you could see me, like I'm, I, we talk to leaders all the time that like, no, something has to be different. And they have to take these huge leaps to actually do something different. And so part of this is actually, uh, supporting those leaders to follow what they know needs to happen 
and stay. It's, it's, you know, it's working for a new system as you're in the old system, right? It's like, for me, this is just increasing our capacity to do that. It's, it's allowing people to try something new while giving them enough comfort and enough ground um, to still function in what's real and true now. Okay, I'm going to throw one more thing into this because we've we've got a little we've right. got a little bit more time. Okay, yeah? um, which is that which is that um, uh, so in the in in the in, in one of the projects we're working on, we've been talking about with one of the senior leaders there. Uh, we've been talking about how there's three key organizations that are involved really in the kind of funding and direction of the whole system, the whole sector, mm-hmm. if you like, right? Um, but there isn't necessarily an alignment among those three uh, key funders, right, on how they measure success across the whole system, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so we're at the point now where we're, where we're saying, where we've sat down and they said, okay, we need to develop some kind of success indicators or progress markers for the system as a whole that we can measure all the different actors against as they move, mm-hmm. right? And so, and so that's fascinating on one level, mm-hmm. right? But it's quite dangerous if that's a pure top-down process. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like if that's just the three funders and they're like, these are our success and progress indicators. And then we're just holding you accountable to them. It becomes a, it becomes a uh, mechanism, mechanism for accountability, but not a mechanism for learning. Right. And so. Yes. You see and, what I'm I mean, saying? Yes. I mean, there's all sorts of dangers there, but yes. Mm-hmm. Keep going. What, like- well, I just think, um, you know, you say a mechanism to accountability and, you know, traditionally, if we talk about the the high level funders, they're not in the field to even quite understand what they're holding people accountable to. Right. So like, there's just like, there's just all sorts of dangers of that kind of top down approach to setting success measures. Although I can, I can really feel the impulse and I can, I can understand why we would want to say like, and, and that is often how change happens, right? That's how people say, we're actually going to do it this way just because we know that's the right thing to do. Right. So you can have really good impacts from that. But the danger is it's quite um, it's quite a what's disconnected from what's happening on the ground. And so the accountabilities that are set up may or may not be reasonable or realistic or in line with what's actually happening on the ground. Exactly. And but what those high level funders do have, right, is access to other key stakeholders who are outside of their system, but still interact with it. Mm -hmm. Right. They have access to national and international data and learning and research from other places. And they have they they have access to some very unique stakeholder groups that aren't always served you know, or Absolutely. visible within the dominant system. Absolutely. Right? So there's, so they bring something to the table in terms of progress indicators development. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So where we've landed also is that within, within this system we're talking about, there's a whole body of work that is kind of your and world, you know, where we're redesigning, we're launching experiments to go and generate data about what the future alternative system could be. And we've got like nine different prototypes happening. So there's all this developmental data being mm-hmm. developed that mm-hmm. we would like we were just talking about. And at the same time, the current system is still running and there's 55 different organizations that are involved in a, in a summative effort where they've been, where an analysis has been done, major gaps have been identified, and their funding is being measured against their ability to achieve within those gaps. It's purely summative. Mm-hmm. Both of those two things currently exist within the right. system, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And so what we're what we're talking about is actually putting in place a very small research body, right, that gathers the data 
from the developmental reinvention piece mm -hmm. that gathers the data from the summative 55 organizations, right? Mm -hmm. And then feeds that in and that research institute makes the recommendation, right? For what the kind of progress or success indicators mm. would be, yeah? So actually it comes out of the bottom and is then fed and supported by those three organizations, the funding organizations as well. But the last thing that's really interesting here for me is that everybody is held accountable to them and everybody mm. is measured against them. So like the 55, the 55 organizations are measured against mm -hmm. them. The prototypes are measured against them and the three funding organizations are measured against these progress and success indicators. And so that becomes like a really interesting then for me, you know, you talked about, you talked about data being a currency, mm -hmm. right? Then it actually becomes like a shared currency. Mm -hmm. It becomes a currency that we're all able to somehow move in and out of. It becomes the thing that can unite us, right? In otherwise, what is a very fragmented system mm -hmm. that's struggling to meet the needs of all the different people who it's meant to be serving. The metaphor I've been using is kind of like, it's a bit like the European currency, you know, mm. it's actually trying to, it's trying to find the thing because the, the European currency was originally created as a peace project, right? It's like, how do we actually create some kind of uniting factor among these nations that have been at war with each mm -hmm. other for so long? Mm -hmm. You know, it's after the coming out of the Second World mm -hmm. War. And, and so uh, and so there's this sense of like, you know, could data actually become one of those things that that is if it's shared, if we're all feeding in to what those success and progress markers are and they're evolving over time and responding and responding to what we're learning, mm -hmm. could data actually be one of the things if we handle it well, that could be collectively owned and become the currency that actually enables us to stay together rather than what data has often been used for, right? Which is the, which is the way to wield power right? And keep us accountable and keep us apart. So that's, it's just like, I mean, like, I'm not even sure I've talked to you about this too much yet, but like, so it's just like, a, it, it's like, oh, well, that's a really different way to think about how we work with our data. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I feel really intrigued and we haven't talked about this yet. And so there are some things that I'm assuming, you know, you're, you're taking for granted. One is that part of the data gather, gathering would be engagement, right? That it wouldn't actually just be from prototypes, established organizations, no, right. right? So that there will be some broader engagement to inform the data. Yeah. And then as you said that, I thought, well, and it's also slightly problematic to only position the data as an accountability measure, right? Like that actually, exactly. so there's something like I'm wanting a little richer around the data that it doesn't just become how we measure ourselves against, are we, are we failing? Are we not? Um, I want I want more depth to what the data can do instead of simply function as accountability. And I'm sure that that's I'm sure that that's part of the conversation. But those are like the two pieces, like the assumptions I think that you're making that I wanted to pull out and say, like, yes, um, you know, that 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 the folks who are going to be measured against it can't be the only place or can't be the only sources of the data and that the data can't just be about accountability um, or, or, you know, when you set data up in that way, it only becomes a game. Yeah. So the idea is, is that the, the data, yes, is an accountability mechanism, but it's also a mechanism through which the whole system can begin to learn and evolve mm -hmm. rather than learning evolving in lots of fragmented places. Mm -hmm. So is that if you can set up, if you can set it up, that it actually would help those who hold decision making mm -hmm. to actually begin to decide they would be accountable to that data because the idea also is that it'd be open. Mm -hmm. that, like it would be accessible, mm -hmm. but it would also uh, drive strategic focus mm -hmm. 
right? At a high level from the three funding organizations, mm-hmm. right? But it would also be a driver of how they distribute their funds. Mm-hmm. So there would be recommendations that came from the from the kind of like small research body on these are the areas that data is saying are strategic, could be strategic focus. Mm-hmm. And these are the areas where we think, you know, based upon what we're receiving, where funding could be distributed. Yeah. And boy, would you need to set up that data collection to be on guard for bias and what? All of that, right? I mean, th- that's that's where, like, uh, uh, I don't know, you know. I kind of want to sit down with all the academics we know and be like, how do you actually set up an independent research institute in a, in a system that's serving over a million people? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, how do you do that? And, uh, and how do you – and are there ways within which you can protect a research institute, right, uh, as much as possible from the various different pieces of bias and advocacy that are going to pile into them once people begin to realize that the data, the generation of the data, whether it be the summative or the developmental, um, could have such significant leverage. Yeah. And I, you know, and so, yes, I was certainly talking about independence and bias in that way, but I was also talking about how the research is very set up, could replicate dominant system biases. Oh, right. Absolutely. And yeah. so, you know, and that is where, Again, it's it's like the appropriate use of power, right? Is to say we actually want a more equitable system, right? And so like we're going to bias our data collection and our measurements toward that, right? That's actually moving in a direction. It's not unbiased, it's not neutral. Um, so just like, just thinking it's actually quite compl- complex. It's, I mean, I feel excited by the idea. I just think there's a lot to kind of think through. Um, and what's exciting is because I know this particular system you're talking about has been, there's been very little coordination or accountability in any way. And so it's great to see them begin to think expansively about what that could look like, not to default to great. Well, then funder, you set up what the accountability is, right? You know, like right. try a exactly. different way of working in that. And it totally makes me, because the the work we're doing in that system is a lot about kind of like community, belonging, mm-hmm. access and inclusion, mm-hmm. right? And so like, that's a huge part right at the center of our work with them. And so we have some academics who are working with us. And so the piece of me is like, I want to make sure those academics who have an eye on those types of issues are involved in the setting up of the kind of research body, mm-hmm. you know, because you're right. Otherwise, it will absolutely just replicate mm-hmm. everything that we're trying to change. Yeah. 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 All right. We are, we're near the end, mate. We're there. Yeah. We're there. And so you're, th- thanks for listening on our data rant today. Yeah. You know? Um, you know, it's a data exploration. How about that? There we go. There we go. I like that. There you go. I'm doing the poem. You're doing the song. I am doing the song. My song today, and again, shameless plug, but my song today is Happy Birthday by Stevie Wonder. And I <laughs> love it because it's my birthday and it makes me happy. But I feel like we have listeners from all over the world. And while I feel like people in the U.S., specifically black folks in the U.S., like all of us know this song, right? It's like, you know, it's like it's 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 a song around happy birthday. But I feel like other people might not know about it. And it's just like the most delightful, happy. I was just um, with the group that we, you know, kind of did the traditional. We sang happy birthday to the person. And, and one of the other folks came up to me and happened, of course, to be uh, a, a black person. And she was like, we got to play TV one. And I'm like, Yes, we do. And so we played it and and the whole group started dancing and it just is a great. So I'm just gifting that into our listeners who may not have heard Stevie Wonder's Happy Birthday.
Nice. Well, here's a poem that goes back quite a long time. It's from John Keats, mm. and it's some lines from um, Endymion, if I'm saying it rightly. A thing of beauty is a joy forever. Its loveliness increases. It will never pass into nothingness, but still will keep a bower quiet for us and a sleep full of sweet dreams and health and quiet breathing. Therefore, on every morrow, are we wreathing a flowery band to bind us to the earth in spite of despondence, of the inhuman dearth of noble natures, of the gloomy days, of all the unhealthy and o'er-darkened ways made for our searching. Yes, in spite of all, some shape of beauty moves away the pall from our dark spirits. Wow. Hmm. Hey. Nice. Good old John Case. <laughs> I was going to say we went we went um you know far from that song to that poem. It's a bit. Uh. <laughs> it's been an interesting podcast today, friend. I'm really I'm glad we did it. <laughs> That's it for this episode of Find the Outside, the podcast. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find podcasts. New episodes of the podcast are available every second Tuesday. If you'd like to get in touch with us about something you heard on the show, you can reach us at podcast at findtheoutside.com. Uh, you can find links to any of the resources, poems, books, songs we mentioned during the show in the show notes for this episode over at findtheoutside.com backslash podcast or in the description for the podcast in the podcast app you're listening to us on. You can find the song we played in today's show and every song we played in previous shows on the playlist we created on Spotify. Just search Find the Outside on Spotify playlists or you can find a link over at findtheoutside.com slash podcast. This episode was edited and produced by Mark Coffin at Sound Good Studio. Theme music for Find the Outside, the podcast is by Gary Blakemore. Fantastic. See you later, folks. Take care, folks.